0: So I want to congratulate you all. This is our fourth day full day of practice. Its a little bit of ringing, or is it i think it, no, I think it's okay sound so um this Dharma talk is dedicated to freedom and um you may not know that today is a very momentous day the I'm not going to read it. Amazing Grace, today we celebrate the Supreme Court's decision making same-sex marriage legal throughout the country. (laughs) And also President Obama gave a masterful and courageous eulogy speech at Clementa Pickney's memorial service. Both call on us to open our hearts and minds in support of those who have been and continue to be targets of hatred and oppression because of who they love, the color of their skin. This is a day of promise. So let's just take a moment and just to take that in. Still a lot to do, but this is a momentous moment. So thank you. I feel very overwhelmed to tears and um yeah. <sighs> So I'll offer you uh, a reading from Hafiz. It's called For Three Days. Hafiz is a Persian wild man poet. He's my brother, my father, my best friend. He says, not many teachers in the world can give you as much enlightenment in one year as sitting all alone, yep, three days, in your closet, that would do. We spent four days in the closet, and that means not leaving, and you better get a friend, and you better get a few sandwiches, and you better get yourself a chamber pot. No reading, uh uh-uh, no writing either. Though the sitting alone is not recommended if you're normally sedated, but dear one, don't let Hafiz fool you, there is a ruby buried inside here. Don't let Hafiz fool you, there's a ruby buried inside here. So many years ago, being so lost in my life, and actually even flunking out of college and being readmitted readmitted back on warning, and desperate to, what could I take for class? My mother begged me, "Isn't there something?" And I saw this course that said Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, and Zen. I didn't know anything about that, but it was about the wisdom of the East. And there was something about the East that I had had a personal connection with growing up. Um, you know, I, I was introduced to Chinese culture really through restaurants, and the food. (laughs) I absolutely loved the food, and the artwork was really incredible. It it had an impression in my heart. And I think in a place of such lostness or confusion, something about the East, I'm going to check this out. That's what brought me to the Dharma. (laughs) And I walked into my classroom, this was in the middle 70s, early 70s, in the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont. And my professor, Bill Jackson, was sitting on top of his desk in a full lotus position. <laughs> I had never had a professor like this before. <laughs> who was this guy? And somehow, his, we've been talking about presence. His presence was like, like, who is this guy? Like the way that he held himself... The way that he spoke, the way that he listened, and something was there. He asked us to read the Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu, the Way of Life, and I fell in love with the Tao. I couldn't believe that someone had thought about life in this way. I just, I, I had been so lost in my life, and I, I just couldn't believe someone actually thought about this in this way and expressed uh their reflections about life, and it came to uh, one of the epigrams. This is eighty-one epigrams, and number forty-seven goes something like this: that there's no need to look outside your window for everything you need to know is inside you. And when I read that, it it, it there was something that that spoke something to me that there's something. Inside me, it was, like, it was almost as if I finally got on a map and there was a pointer. If you want to know something, you need to begin to look in here. And to be honest, in my life, I had never thought about that before in my entire life. I didn't have a clue. I was very lost, a lot of grief. There was a lot of death early in my life and so forth. And this pointing inwards was the beginning of, of um, this blessed, amazing journey into the heart. To sit with ourselves is not easy, and I think you all know that. And uh, Bhante G, as he's affectionately known, his name is Bhante Gunaratana. He's a Selenese monk that has lived in the United States for many years. He wrote actually a fabulous book called Mindfulness in Plain English. And if you don't have it, I highly recommend it. But he speaks about that to sit and to meditate, and I love the word that he chose. He says it takes gumption. I love it because it's kind of an onomatopoeia gumption. It takes gumption. It takes guts to sit with ourselves. Or, you know, John Cabazin says sitting with ourselves is, not for, the, is for the, not for the faint of heart. It takes gumption to be willing to sit in this hall of mirrors, starring me, myself, and I. To sit inside our own experience and to be present, to be aware of what's here. Bhante goes on and says that somewhere in this process of meditation, you will come face to face with the sudden realization that you are completely crazy, (laughs) and that your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels, barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. But he offers some hope. He says, it's not a problem. You're not any crazier than you were yesterday. It's always been this way. You perhaps you just haven't noticed. <laughs> so we're diving into the inner landscape. A friend of mine once said, it's all an inside job. And I just really appreciate that very short saying. It's an inside job, this work on ourselves. Our whole world is created through our mind. Actually, in the Dhammapada of Sometimes it's referred to as the Buddhist Bible, but it says that the mind is the creator of our own heavens in our own hells through our own thoughts, the power of the mind. And so within this inside job, we're working on ourselves in what was expressed today as well as in other days, the importance if we're going to be facilitating mindfulness that we also do this inner work ourselves. This is part of the inside job. And it's said that the shamans of old, they would know how to travel with those that they worked with into their hells and help them to come back. And they learned how to do that because they learned how to travel into their own hells and learned how to come back. So we've been sitting with what comes up in our minds and our hearts. And even though outside we got bambis and beautiful weather and this and that, on the inside, it's a little cooker. At one point in my life, I lived in a Buddhist monastery, tending to the monks and so forth for for many years. And we used to have an affectionate saying about the monastery. It's a little bit of a crude language, but I'll say it anyways. But we used to call it the shit accelerator. And because, you know, like on the outside it looks all nice, but on the inside it's like, we're working on our our mind. Who took my toothpaste? Where'd my sandals go? Why is that monk sitting in that chair? I should be there. You know, like it just gets down to the basics. (laughs) Envy, anger, jealousy, rage. I want, I'm special. I'm the worst. On it goes. And then it goes. What's really amazing about just looking out at all of you is, you know, your willingness to want to work to get to know yourself and your heart. It really is amazing. And that at times is not the norm. Saint Augustine He writes in the year 399. That's a long time ago. Not at 1939. 399 A.D. He says, people travel to wonder at the height of the mountains and wonder at the huge waves of the seas, wonder at the long courses of the river, wonder at the circular motion of the stars, the vast compass of the ocean, and then they walk right past themselves without ever wondering. Almost take your breath away, walking right past yourself without ever wondering. And we are beginning to wonder, beginning to look into this mind and body. So I offer you these deep bows for your wondering into who is this who is this person? Who is this me? And I know at times it might actually feel counter, counter feel at times counterintuitive to turn in, particularly when there's areas of pain. And so much appreciated, uh, Mark's um, presentation this afternoon about the importance of moving in and coming out, the sense of regulation. Because it feels kind of counterintuitive, this path at times, turning into the pain, turning into the fear. So, yeah, so important with that sense of regulation, particularly if there's a lot of trauma. And I also want to just acknowledge that this turning into, as counterintuitive as it is, may at times yield or have some illumination into what's actually going on uh, under the hood, if you will. So you can probably hear by my voice that I still have some residual Boston accent. I grew up in Boston. And um, growing up, of course, in Boston in the snowy environment during the winter and becoming a teen and getting my car license and beginning to drive in the snow and at first often getting myself caught in a skid. And for those of you that know about driving in snow, um you know when you get in the skid being a new driver I was kind of I was scared of the skid and so I would turn away and my car would skid out even more I was telling my dad about this one day and he said Bob if you want to get out of the skid you got to turn the wheels into it and that scared me I couldn't believe that are you kidding I I didn't believe him so I kept on turning away <laughs> Till I experienced the futility of turning away and never straightening out until one day, eensy-beensy little, turning the wheels a little bit, little baby toe, in towards the skid, and I could feel the velocity of my car beginning to kind of move towards straightening. It was a very powerful moment for me. And I think it like seeded this notion of turning into my fear, my pain. The unwanted, the unacknowledged. A beginning seed of that. And I, again, I, I don't want to appear to be macho. Yeah, just turn into it and burn. I mean, I'm not saying that. There's importance of regulation actually when you're doing an inquiry of this type of sort, the importance of feeling safe is paramount. And that this investigation, this interest, the want to know. And the energy, actually factors of awakening begin to arise and becoming interested in what's here. And again, so that sense of regulation and safety is important. But as we turn in, let's, maybe we'll begin to discover something. And here's a very powerful descriptor. This was written by a Christian monk in the Middle Ages, so it has some Middle Age descriptive uh, language in here that you'll appreciate. It says, as the light increases, and so we could refer to the light as awareness, mindfulness. As the light increases, we see ourselves to be worse than we thought. We are amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful feelings like filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. <laughs> we never could have believed that we had harbored such things and we stand aghast. But while our faults diminish the light by which them waxes brighter and we can be filled with horror. But here's a nice message. He says, Please bear in mind for your comfort that we only perceive our malady when the cure begins. Bear in mind for your comfort that we only perceive the malady when the cure begins. This is the power of awareness. The one that knows is the beginning pathway. To its wisdom, it's the thing of not knowing that continues the spin of suffering. So here's a powerful, transformative type of uh, poem from Jennifer Wellwood called "Unconditional," and this is her journey of turning into. She says, willing to experience my aloneness, I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fears, I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening to my losses, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end. For each condition I flee from, it pursues me. While each condition I welcome transforms me. Each condition I flee from pursues me. Each condition I begin to welcome can begin to transform me. It's a very powerful teaching there. And there's a perennial wisdom, not only within the Dharma, but we can find this in many different spiritual and psychological conditions traditions, this sense of the turning into. And so I just want to honor the the vulnerability and the courage. And may there be wisdom going into, coming out, regulating, taking care of ourselves. And, and, you know, to me, the, the work that we're doing here is some of the most noblest works that one could do. You know that old folk song, Let There Be Peace, Let It Begin With Me. There is no greater work than this. Because we know about the activists that are just as violent as the perpetrators. This peace, we're still talking about what the Buddha discovered. That's 2,600 years ago. We're still talking about it. This sense of this... Someone asked, well, is it selfish to meditate? It came up in one of our groups. And, and you know, maybe self-love, the sense of making peace, and the impact of making peace within us, its impact within our culture, within the generations is huge. So I'm going to talk about a few things tonight, and I want to just mention first about uh, John Kabat-Zinn. And it's important, in these days and ages, mindfulness, as we've been talking about, has just become so exponentially uh, known, and uh, this, uh, people want to practice and teach it, and it's It's amazing. And it's wonderful to hear Mario's talk on all the research, and um, th- there is I, I just want to say that, you know, in some ways, like never before in the history of the world. and I don't say this in I mean to say this in a narcissistic or egoic sense, but we, we haven't had this type of conversion of the science with meditation to this type of sophistication. This just hasn't happened before. It just hasn't happened. And yeah, the the, the implications of, of the research that's happened, that is happening, that will be happening, is um, mind-blowing. And as I mentioned, I think, earlier, all these different mindfulness-based approaches that have arisen and continue to arise. Actually, we, we kind of have a, a loving joke about it at the Center for Mindfulness at UMass, like, what, like which new MB is coming on the block this week? MB meaning mindfulness-based, this mindfulness-based, this mindfulness-based, that. But how wonderful, how wonderful. So contrary to popular opinion, John Kabat-Zinn did not invent mindfulness. But I think, you know, we owe a lot of um, gratitude for John in the sense of his um, amazing ability to really pioneer bringing mindfulness-based approaches into the mainstream. In a way, and you know, with his friend Richie Davidson and getting the science. He's very smart. He's a you know MIT graduate in molecular biology. And while he was on the medical faculty, the medical school at UMass Medical Center, he, he also was practicing Zen and Vipassana and and decided to go on a retreat at Insight Meditation Society in Barry, Massachusetts. And while he was there, he was reflecting on his career in medicine. He was teaching in the medical school. And then he was also just reflecting upon how much he loves the Dharma, these teachings. And then, as he says, it was like this moment of like profound inspiration arose within him. And he said, "Why can't we bring those two together?" I can go back to the medical school, I'll write a proposal and, 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 and I'll f- develop some type of a mindfulness stress reduction for people working with stress, pain, and illness, and it'll be a go. And, and then like his inspiration, and, like, and it'll spread all over the country. And it'll spread all over the world. And, and sometimes in talking with him, he'll say it's almost like a deja vu. But that, that was the inspiration that arose in his heart. And it's amazing. Um, what has happened. And, you know, I have the fortunate opportunity to travel to many places in the world. I'm part of the Center for Mindfulness teaching team, and so we help train other people to become MBSR teachers in many different places, actually going to Beijing in November, offering the very first teacher training in China. And, um, but it's amazing to meet people from different places with this hunger I want to learn about mindfulness. I want to learn about heartfulness and bring it to my people. It's really like, you know, I, it's hard to believe. So in some ways, there's like, I don't want to be grandiose. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. But hearing a day like today where the Supreme Court has now made it legal for Gay marriage throughout the United States is huge. And, you know, and this is seeding a global renaissance. There is a lot of work to be done, yes. You know, and greed, hatred, and ignorance, is, it's got some powerful grip. So, but as much as we can help to bring greater awareness, greater heart into ourselves, into our lives, into our relations, to those we interact with, this will help foster greater peace. So I think it's also very important to understand when John was at the Insight Meditation Society, he was taking, a, I think, fairly pretty much a, you know, an insight meditation retreat, a Vipassana retreat, and I think it's helpful to, to get a sense, and you, of course, are getting a sense because you're in an insight retreat as well, including our seminars. But like, what were the teachings that he was exposed to, that he fell in love with, that inspired him so deeply to go back to the medical school to put together a proposal that was granted, begin to study, and you know, the, and all that has happened. There was some inspiration Some deep love of these teachings of the Dharma that inspired him to bring mindfulness into medicine and into the world. And so it's really important, and we're not saying that you have to be a Buddhist, because actually the Buddha wasn't a Buddhist, technically speaking. (laughs) But the Buddha means awakened. Awakened. And it is important for us to know that our interest in teaching mindfulness, facilitating mindfulness, that we understand the deep roots. And this has been pointed to with both earlier talks with Mark and Diana. So I want to just fill in some more tonight. To understand how that these, the teachings that, 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 when we speak about mindfulness, it comes from this body of teachings, liberative teachings of the heart. That, we, that I really want us to understand more about what, John experienced it, inspired him so much to bring this into the world. So often in Insight Meditation retreats, there's these powerful teachings about the four ennobling noble truths, the marks, the three marks of existence, and the four foundations of mindfulness. So I'll speak a little bit about these, but first maybe a little bit of a story that's important. And I won't go into the longer details of the story of the Buddha's awakening, but I think it's it's important to hear, and I, I happen to just personally get a lot of inspiration for this story because I relate to it personally. And so the story goes that you know, Siddhartha Gautama, who later became the Buddha, was born in a very wealthy family. His father was a king. He was a prince. He was destined to become a great king. And some um, astrologers had mentioned early on, when, when he was just a little baby, some of them said, oh, yes, he's going to become a great king. But one said, oh no, he's going to become a Buddha. And the father was like, oh no, I don't want to become a Buddha. So he's not going to see anything that will shake his heart. So he had palaces here, palaces here. He had the latest iPhone 6 and everything, you know. <laughs> he had everything you wanted. Latest Android. And um, everything was peachy, rosy, creamy up till um, the age of 29. And for whatever reason, he went out of the palace and came across what's known as these messengers, often known as the heavenly messengers. He first came across uh, aging, illness, death. And he, he, he was shaken to the core, coming and seeing a very old person and realizing that he cannot escape from aging. Coming to a person who's very ill and realizing that no one can escape from illness. Coming to a dead person and realizing that no one can escape death. These are powerful shakings within the body and the heart and the mind. And some people might think, oh, isn't it naive? He didn't know anything about this at the age of 29. Well, I'm 61, and did I, do I feel, really get it as well? Sometimes you kind of just live in a little dream world. But then things happen. He begin to wake up. At the age of 29, something woke him up that it's not going to last. He was in a lot of despair, and he didn't know what to do, and then he encountered the fourth heavenly messenger, which was a monastic or a samana, a, whole, a person that was dedicating their life to awakening. And when he saw that, he realized this is what he must do. To leave his palace, leave his wife that was just about to bear a child. On the night that his wife was in labor, he left the palace, and you know you might think, what a what a what a, what a he left the wife. <laughs> so, I'll just say, after he awakened, he came back and he met with his son and his wife, and they all got enlightened, they all live happily ever after. (laughs) But I'm moving ahead a bit. But it's a nice story to know, like, he did come back. I'm touched with that. He came back. He came back. But he had to know. He was, in Pali, there's a word called samwega, which means when you have the understanding that death can come at any moment, it catapults you into a sense of spiritual urgency to know the truth. There's just nothing else that matters. That's just one word, samwega. Packs a punch. Samwega. And so he traveled. To many different meditation masters, he was a fabulous student, and he mastered everything that any of these teachers taught. At the time, they were teaching a very type of absorption, concentration, jhana-type practices, and you know the teachers would eventually say, "Well, you've learned everything I have. Come sit next to me, and you can teach." But Siddhartha still felt that wasn't enough. Still didn't understand. So eventually, he'd heard about punishing the body. Maybe that's the way to go. Self mortification. And he practiced severely, limiting his food intake down to one grain of rice a day, to the point where when he put his hand on his belly, he felt his tailbone. And at the brink of collapse and realizing the futility of the extreme punishing of the body, he realized that he needed to take food and that this was not the way to awaken. So he left these five ascetics and he was cared for, took in some nourishment, got his health back and came to a very glorious and beautiful tree and decided to take a seat at this tree. And then he decided that there wasn't any other teacher to go to, no other teaching to go and to try to figure out or to master or to learn that he was going to stay here. There was a kind of a resolve. I'm going to stay here. And I, I'm, I've, I've been to so many places. I've done so much. I'm going to stay here and sit. And a very momentous thing happened. So he began to sit. And somewhere along the way, he recalled a story when he was younger, a child. And it was another kind of beautiful spirit rock type day. You know these beautiful days here; it's amazing. And he was sitting underneath another tree. It was when he was a boy, and he was looking out on the pasture, and, and it, was, it was just ah, oh, it was just so beautiful. He's feeling the connectedness of this world. And then also there was some farmers that are in the pasture and they were having an oxen and plow and they were just beginning to put the plow into the earth to turn it over for, um, to plant seeds and grow food. And I think because of the increased sensitivity of that feeling of connection of the day and all that's happening. And then when the plow went into the soil, he almost like sensed the cry of the worms, the pain. And it's like this moment of the connected beautifulness of the world and the sadness. It's a powerful moment. And then something happened in his meditation that I, I really want to emphasize because I think it's it's really important. And perhaps we'll never know what really happened. But what we do know is that he was really into, they were really into absorption and concentration, and he changed the focus of that concentrated awareness not into absorption, but to begin to be aware of the changing nature of things that was affected because of this sensitivity of, of, of death and change and everything that had happened, the focus shifted to being aware of the rising and the falling of the breath, and that gave way into powerful realizations eventually. These realizations have become known as the noble truths, but I think realization's insights into the nature of things is, I think, more accurate. I like that language better. And he first came across and understood that there is indeed suffering. And of course it was suffering that brought him out of the palace and so forth. Um, And if you don't like the word suffering, um, here's from the canonical literature some different definitions of dukkha, which is the Pali word It's often known translated as suffering, but we can say anguish, anxiety, affliction, dissatisfaction, discomfort, discontent, frustration, misery, you kind of get the point, sorrow, stress, suffering, uneasiness, unease, unhappiness, unsatisfactoriness, I mean, it goes on. I think its roots is that um, there was this wheel and it wasn't quite round and you used to go, the duke, the duke, the duke, and that's the origins of the word dukkha. Just doesn't quite fit right. So, to me, this realization of suffering was important, of course. To me, what's really striking is as he began to acknowledge this is indeed suffering, that there is causes to the suffering. This to me is really important. I want to speak about this for a bit. Because these causes relate to, as mindfulness facilitators, we're working with people that have a lot of stress. I I can go through the list again, right? Why would we want to take a mindfulness class if everything was wonderful? Why are you even here if everything was wonderful? Why am I here if everything was wonderful? You know, So, these causes, and, and we, we, we work with ourselves with these causes and, and, and those we serve. So I'll read from Achan Amaro, an Englishman, bhikkhu, monk. He has a beautiful rendering of um, this, the noble truth of the cause of suffering. And he says, namely, it is craving... See if you can relate to any of these descriptors. It's craving that is compelling and intoxicating, which causes us to be born into things again and again, ever seeking delight now here and now there. Anybody know about c- compelling and intoxicating craving? Huh? Anyone? Raise your hand if you've ever, <laughs> you ever experienced intoxicating, compelling craving. Yeah ever-seeking delight now here and now there. Namely, the craving for sensual delight, the craving to be something, and the craving to feel nothing. So I'd like to impact that a little bit. But first, just to say that, that what gives fuel to these cravings, there's even a, a deeper root, which is aware, unawareness, not knowing. And it's just not knowing that gives rise to the cravings. My teacher, Tampu Lucero, he used to say, if you know, it will break. You're breaking the cycle of suffering. If you don't know, you go round and around. This is the teachings of what's called dependent origination. If you know, it'll break. If you can begin to recognize the cycles of suffering, if you can begin to know it and understand it, then you can begin to break that cycle. If you don't know, you go around and around. So this unawareness gives rise to these cravings. Perhaps we're holding a belief of our own deficiency and that that we have to somehow find that sense of happiness and lasting happiness through something outside of us. And you know, when we just take a look at the word desire, I, find, I got a beautiful definition the other day from somewhere that desire itself, it just keeps you wanting, wanting what you can't have. Yeah. Keeps you wanting, wanting what you can't have. But I also want to acknowledge that for many of us, we, there is a, a longing. We long to belong. And actually in, in um, Latin, the word desire comes from desidare and it has its roots in to belong to the stars. Very interesting. But Let's look a little bit more closely about this craving for sensual delight. And so we can say that this is like the eros, or the libidinal instinct a drive, like to feel good. Pleasure. Some of you have heard the story the day I was eating some of my favorite vegan tofu ice cream, and I, I was just an ecstasy. I was just home. And then all of a sudden I noticed there was only one bite left, and then all this sadness came, like, what the hell am I going to do with my life? I'll get another bowl. I want to ask you, has the Amazon one-click buy-it improved your life? Hasn't made you happy? There's a certain rush, though, one click. Boom! I got it. <laughs> boom, I got it. It feels good for a moment, but then it leaves, so you have got to click it again. Like from the Rolling Stones, I just can't get no satisfaction as much as I try. Kabir says, "Friend. Please tell me what I can do about this world that I hold on to but it keeps on spinning out. I gave up my sewn clothes and I wore a robe but then one day I noticed that the cloth was well woven so I bought some burlap but I still throw it elegantly over my left shoulder. I pulled back my sexual longings and now I discovered I'm angry a lot. (laughs) I gave up rage now I notice I'm greedy all day. I've worked hard at dissolving my greed and now I'm proud of myself. (laughs) It goes on for a very, very long time. (laughs) And perhaps if we have this belief inside us that somehow I am not enough and I have to get this to feel good, So we keep on going on. It's like the roots of addiction to kind of lose myself, to feel good, to get lost in it. But it's fleeting. It's impermanent. The ice cream doesn't last. It's wonderful to enjoy that strawberry, to enjoy that beautiful moment of making love with your beloved. And we also understand it comes and goes. It's not that we need to negate that. It's not that desire is morally wrong. But it's also some ways like a cause of suffering because we, we can't be content. We want more. The craving to be someone. The superego, narcissism. Emily Dickinson writes, I'm nobody, who are you? Are you nobody too? Then there's a pair of us. Don't tell. they banish us, you know. But oh, how dreary to be somebody, how public like a frog, to tell your name the live long day to an admiring bog. The craving to be someone is filled with I, I, I. I'm Bob, I'm a meditation teacher, I teach at Spirit Rock, I'm a hot shit. (laughs) I drive a Prius. I mean, it just goes on, all these identities. And and you know what? I need you to laugh at me. And then later, I need you to write notes and say, wasn't that a great talk? Because I need that from you to know that I am whole and that I am an okay person. Craving to be someone is endless, a great pain. How many times have I left myself, have we left ourselves looking for love? So that old country western song, I'm looking for love in all the wrong places. Yeah, It's very powerful. I need you or whatever to affirm that I'm okay. We leave ourselves, remember I said earlier, everyone else is taken. How do we become our genuine being? Yeah. The craving to feel nothing, thanatos, the death instinct, not wanting to feel, annihilation, numbing, thousands of ways of doing that, losing ourselves in whatever it is that we lose ourselves into, so I just don't have to feel. Some years ago, there was a difficult time in our family's life where there was a possibility that my son had lymphoma. Fortunately, as it turned out, he had mono. So I have a saying that I love mono as compared to lymphoma, of course. But during that particular period of time, I noticed, and I was actually teaching a retreat near my house because so I could go back and forth. I noticed that the only thing that I wanted to do, I would get in the hall, I sit, and I, you know, and it's just like ugh, just sitting with all that's up here. And then whenever there was a break, I would just go back to my room and I just wanted to go to sleep. I just wanted to sleep. That was my only refuge, sleep. And then I'd wake up and be all right for about a half a second and then like, oh man, what's going to happen? Like, oh, then it dawned on me, this is what the Buddha's talking about not wanting to feel it. I, I, I never really related to that until like, oh, then the, everything, like how many places in my life am I churning away that I don't want to feel? Isn't this, this is brilliant, these discoveries and teachings about the workings of our mind and our suffering and our stress. So since i tagged along a couple of songs, can't get no satisfaction for craving looking for love in all the wrong places for want to be someone and so what's the best song for this is Simon & Garfunkel I am a rock I am an island and a rock feels no pain and an island never cries cuz it doesn't have to feel and it's funny when i was younger i really liked that song and i didn't know why cuz i just didn't want to feel a rock feels no pain, an island never cries. Yeah. We well, you know about that place, to turn it away, to not feel. All rooted in this misconceptions, something outside will make me whole. So the question arises: Who is this me? Descartes declares many years ago in that wonderful, powerful statement, I think, therefore I am. Well, is my body me? The body gives birth to hundred billion red cells every day. Humans shed six hundred particles of skin every hour, about a pound and a half, pound about a pound and a half a year. So actually, we've been here about an hour times about 90 people, 600,000 particles. Anyone got a calculator? (laughs) Body makes a new liver every six weeks, makes a new stomach every five days, replaces new head hair, except for me, every two to five years, (laughs) replaces eyebrows every three to five months, grows new skin once a month, replaces the skeleton every seven years. 50,000 of the cells in your body will die and be replaced with new cells all while you listen to me read this sentence. Radioactive isotype studies show that the body replaces 98% of its atoms in less than one year. So, in other words, the parts of the body are appearing and disappearing because they're atoms, protons, neutrons, electrons, and a lot of space. So if you think you're your body, which body are you talking about? The body you have today is not the body you had yesterday. One of the most radical teachings in the Dharma that perplexes many of us is these teachings of no self. It's found in the marks of existence, or the selfless nature of things. And even, you know, neuroscientists, when they try to find the self in the brain, they can't find one, and this is kind of a little bit intellectual, but it's from Rick Hansen and Richard Mendius. He says that from a neurological standpoint, the everyday feeling of being a unified self is an utter illusion. The apparently coherent and solid I is actually built from many subsystems and many subsubsystems. So it goes on, that's enough. This sense of no self, though, it rubs up against our status, our roles, our ethnicity, our culture, and perhaps since we're here in America, we say it's just downright (laughs) un-American because I'm me. (laughs) But even Alice from Alice in Wonderland had some problems with, with self. She says that the caterpillar and Alice, they looked at each other for some time in silence and at last the caterpillar took the hookah, the pipe, out of its mouth and addressed her in a languid and sleepy voice and said, who are you, said the caterpillar. This was not an encouraging opening of a conversation, Alice thought. I, 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 I hardly know, sir, said Alice, just at present. At least I knew who I was when I got up this morning, but I think I must have changed several times since then. Well, what do you mean, said the caterpillar. Explain yourself. And Alice said, I'm sorry, I, I can't explain myself. I'm afraid because I'm not myself, you see. I also like the definition of non-self as the ownerless nature of things cuz you'll notice like on the top of my hair here, here, there's no hair. And I did not tweet or invite my head hair to fall. It just came out. I actually like the age of 33, but I'm now 61. How did that happen? Can't I stay at 33? Though actually, I don't know if I'd really want to be at 33 again. My prostate's getting larger. I'm having urinary retention. I did not invite my prostate to do that. It's just doing it anyways. There's no control. We are coming up against this in our human condition all the time. I got a cancer. I got heart disease. I got this. I got that. I got anxiety. These things, you know, like they didn't get personal invitations. It's 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 what happens when there's a birth, and there's aging, and there's illness, and there's death. No doubt, we can maximize our health and well-being. Meditate. Eat good. Exercise have good interpersonal communications, but the death rate has remained the same through the ages. It's one per person. <laughs> it's not going to change. <clears throat> one of the attributes that's, that's talked about with the Buddha is that he experienced the unconditioned, which I really like. Because when it's implying when it speaks about experiencing the unconditioned, then you know if we by rationale that's pointing to that there must be a condition. Because how can you have an unconditioned if there's a if there's no condition? All right. And so, from a psychological standpoint, standpoint, what does conditioning mean? To me, it means our story, our narrative, my beliefs and who it is that I think that I am. And to me, the definition of non-self is breaking free of that story that has enslaved us. And in Buddhist psychology, it's brought down to greed, hatred, and ignorance. And that's through the practices of mindfulness, of awareness, that we can begin to awaken. You've been sitting for a number of days seeing the stories ad nauseum. How much air time have you gone and spending on this and on that and the beliefs and I'm no good and this and that and who am I to teach mindfulness and whatever it is. These stories that are spinning, these conditions, old ways of seeing. And the liberating qualities of these teachings is to become aware of these stories and realize that they're limited definitions. The Buddha nature becomes free of this enslavement of these conditions, these narratives, these stories that I tell myself and who I think I am. So I like to consider that that the teachings of non-self is pointing to breaking free of these narratives. And these narratives can be very intense. You know, growing up, I had an Uncle Sidney. He was a nice guy. He was doing the best that he can. He might have not even known what he was doing, but I realized as years go by, um, when, when I was young, I liked peanuts. And I would go to my grandma's house, and there'd be bowls. She'd always have bowls. She knew I liked peanuts and others. And, 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 and so I'd, I'd go in and I'd get my peanuts. And, and every now and again, and it became a habit of him, he'd go, Here comes the claw. Here comes the claw. Here comes the claw. What's he talking about? The claw, for crying out loud. And and now i get a little shy going after the, like the claw is going to get some peanuts again. The stories that we've been told, that we're telling ourselves. In an MBSR class, there was a woman in her 60s. She confided one night. She goes, you know, there has not been one day in my entire adult life that I haven't called myself an asshole. I have a friend growing up. His father was a retired submarine commander. His mother, the commander's wife, committed suicide. It was a difficult situation. There were four boys, they were all tall. My friend was very tall, very clumsy, and walking into things. And so his father gave him a nickname. So you've heard of um, the children's story about King Midas everything you touch turns to gold. His nickname was King Minus. Everything you touch breaks. That's like a kick in the belly just to hear that. That's an extreme story, but it's not extreme for some of us here. And what we've led to believe that we're not smart, I can't get on in life, also the problems with our culture and privilege and the prejudice. And I mean, this is so complicated, everything but the stories that we've told ourselves have enslaved us. I'm happy to say that with my friend, he's done tremendous healing in his life, and he's become very successful, but the most successful is that he's got successful with his heart. He's no longer King Minus. But the stories at times that we tell ourselves, you're privy to them. You've been experiencing them, and how enslaving they are. The gift of awareness is it helps us to begin to see these stories. And it's very important to say, we cannot bypass these stories. So it's very interesting that this practice is incredibly personal. And it's incredibly impersonal. It's both. And we can't know the impersonal until we fully embrace, we can't know the impersonal until we know the personal. This is what we get to work with to become free. To become aware of the stories what we've told ourselves, to become free, we have to understand these stories and to perhaps recognize they are limited definitions of who we think we are. It's a beautiful reading from um, organizational consultant Margaret Wheatley, and she says, this is the gift of awareness, she says, I know that we notice what we notice because of who we are, and we create ourselves by what we choose to notice. And once this work of self-authorship has begun, we inhabit the world we've created. We self-seal, and we don't notice anything except those things that confirm what we already think about who we already are. When we succeed in moving outside of our normal processes of self-reference and can begin to look upon ourselves with self-awareness, we have a chance of changing. We can break the seal. We can notice something new. This is the liberating teachings of the Dharma. Awareness, mindfulness. The one that sees the story has begun to to get get some insight. So I think I'm just about done and I wanna just thank you. And this is the deep work, the most noblest of works is this piece, is the work on ourselves, becoming first aware of these stories, beginning to realize these are limited definitions. And to become ourselves, as I said again and again, everyone else is taken, can we become ourselves? That's why Antonio Machado He says, some say it's good to dream, and others say it's better to live. But best of all, my friend, is to awaken. Best of all, my friend, is to awaken. May all beings discover the gateways into their hearts. May there be peace. thank you all so much for listening and why don't the bell ringer kindly ring the bell at nine and we'll come in a little bit after that and have a closing sit. Thank you.